0: This week on Developer Voices, we're talking about a new programming language and some new ideas for how programming languages should work by looking at the language Unison. Now, Unison's been built specifically to tackle the problems of distributed computing. And that might seem a bit niche, but it's much more general than that. Because from a certain point of view, when you think about it, pretty much all computing is distributed these days. We don't run code on one machine anymore. There's the obvious kind of distributed computing when you push your code out to a cluster of servers and they're all working together on the same task. But even in the more humdrum settings, I write some code on my laptop, I share it with the team, they share it back with me, we put it out to a CI server and to test and prod. And even though they're running different instances in different environments... Isn't that all distributed code across a distributed code base? From a certain point of view, I think it is. And that's the core cool thing about Unison. It's got some ideas for how we can unify all those different kinds of distributed code and make the experience better, whether it's just you working on your laptop with a friend or a mega cluster. With one simple trick, as they say in the clickbait, I'm not going to give the game away, but I'll give you a hint. You know how Git has changed the way we share source code? And it did it with an immutable append-only database that was cheap and easy to copy, and just enough cryptography to verify that database as we pass it around, and be absolutely sure that if I've got the same hash as you, then we're working on the same source tree. I've always thought Git was a really smart approach. It's worked really well in practice, and yet we only apply it to source code. Can we take that idea further? Well, let's find out. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Runar Bjarnason. I'm joined today by Runa Bjarnason. Runa, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, um, you're coming to us live from Boston, right? That's right. I'm just outside of Boston, but from Icelandic roots.
1: Yeah, I'm originally. I'm, I'm originally from Akureyri, Iceland, but I've come a long way since then.
0: You really have, and you've got. Um, a career to match a long journey, I think, it's from what I gather. It's been a long, strange trip. Yeah. Do you have an academic background, for starters? I do
1: not. Um, I went to a technical college in Reykjavik, but I dropped out
0: because oh, I got a really? job
1: cataloging computer viruses. <laughs>
0: and, and yet uh, somehow the academic stuff has caught you up, in a way
1: yeah you know I've always been a reader always been sort of an autodidact uh, taught myself how to program and on the on the sinclair spectrum Zx oh which one did you have back in the day I had the zx forty eight k Zx plus the zx plus
0: a neighbor of mine had that and I have never been more envious of a human being before or since and I eventually got the next version the plus two but that's going back oh, f- too far into history. We need to get a bit more up to date, more quickly. <laughs> so, okay. to ground this, you in 2014, you released a book which you co-authored called Functional Programming in Scala. That's right. And you clearly had got the functional programming in a statically typed language bug, but that hadn't gone far enough. So what did you do next?
1: What did I do next? Well, uh, you know, I started uh, with my co-author Paul uh, started developing the the Unison language. So Paul had had actually been developing Unison uh, like after you know we sort of parted ways after the book, and so he started Hmm. to develop Unison. And uh, I was doing Haskell programming for various clients and uh, and you know working in industry. And, uh, and then, you know, he got a little bit along with this, with this Unison language and, uh, asked me to, to join and form a company So we founded a company called Unison Computing. And, you know, we're developing this language.
0: And that's been going for nearly 10 years now? The, the language? The language and the company. So so we started the company in
1: 2018. Okay. And, uh... I think Paul started working on it maybe 2016 something like that. Okay. But the, the sort of genesis of it is that we we were actually working together so when we started writing the book we were working together writing Scala, you know, purely functional Scala. Mm. Um, and we actually developed a small language for the you know for our employer at the time. And so we got this sort of language development bug. Uh, From from there,
0: yeah. Uh, Hang on, why why is a client asking you to write a language from scratch? So this was for doing uh,
1: financial reports and like uh, sort of doing quantitative analysis on portfolios and stuff like that. And so it needed to be very expressive, and they had this sort of visual language where you could like assemble. Uh, sort of blocks of code together and uh, kind of evolved into like a whole language. It was pretty cool.
0: But you you didn't get the um, visual programming language bug. You went back to text,
1: right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think visual programming is kind of a dead end in that it doesn't really allow for uh, programs that are as expressive.
0: No, and it doesn't manage... Complexity that well, I think.
1: No, that's true. It, does, it doesn't hide the complexity very well.
0: No, no. And it makes it a rat's nest to debug. Anyway, but you have some other ideas about how programming should work. And this is, I often think you can categorize languages as what they're like that's gone before and what's brand new about them that we should pay attention to. Yeah. So, sort of
1: genus and differentia.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can you categorize Unison that way?
1: Sure. Uh, Unison is a statically typed, purely functional language uh, similar to Haskell mm.
0: uh,
1: in that sense. But it is also a, uh, a sort of image-based language similar to Smalltalk. That is, the code base is not a collection of mutable text files. It's uh, an actual database that has your code in it. So that's rather similar to, to what uh, languages like Smalltalk do. OK. So that's how it's similar to other languages. But the way it's different is that uh, the code, so all the code uh, in your code base is referenced by hash. So that's really the the, the main differentiator. So. Every definition has a unique, well, you know, most, mostly unique uh, and sort of eternal address, which is the hash of its implementation. And so you can right. unambiguously refer to any expression or type using its hash.
0: So you're doing this trick that Git does, but they do it like hash a file and store it under the hash. You're doing it hash a function definition.
1: Yes. So we hash a function definition. We hash types. We also hash namespaces. You know that are collections of hashes.
0: Right. Why? What does that get you?
1: <laughs> yeah. Why? So <clears throat> the the main for me the main benefit of this is that you know it allows you to unambiguously communicate code uh, over time and space, basically. So over space, meaning that you you can communicate over the network. You know, you can unambiguously communicate code over the network. So whereas if you're developing a distributed system in a traditional language, hmm. uh, you have to do something at, like, network boundaries. For instance, you'll take your data structures, you'll serialize them to XML or JSON or some custom format, and then send it to the other machine and then on the other side you have to have some code that deserializes that and and you know turns it into whatever data structures you you have, you mm-hmm. know, or you can do like remote procedure calls, but then the locations will have to agree on what the code is beforehand and like they can't get out of sync and stuff like that. But in unison, we can send the hash over the network and say, hey, here is the code I want to run, that mm-hmm. I want you to run. It has this hash. And if it has the hash, then it just goes and runs it. But if it doesn't have the hash, then we actually serialize the code. You know, we we capture the continuation of the program, and we serialize that along with all of its dependencies uh, up to some agreed-upon depth. And then the remote location continues to uh, execute the program.
0: Does that include the state of the computation? It does. So I can get halfway through a function, suspend it, and ship it over the network and have it run elsewhere. Yes. That kind of okay. So that remote kind of remote code execution raises a lot of questions. The first one is security.
1: Right. So you so for for one thing, you wouldn't want to, you know, accept this kind of call from the internet, right? Yeah. So you wouldn't want to to expose your your Unison node to uh, to the internet and say like, "Oh, hey, send me whatever code you want." So that's the first thing. Mm. And the second thing is that uh, since Unison is you know strongly and statically typed, um, and we have uh, effect types, so Unison calls these things abilities, mm. and so different locations have different abilities. And when you when you, you know expose a location or like a Unison to node to like the rest of your your uh, cloud, then you specify what abilities it has, and so you can't, for instance, send a computation that does some I/O, for instance, unless the location specifies in its type that it is allowed to perform I/O.
0: So I could uh, I could build a service that allows you to send me code and I run it provided that code is only either pure functions or gets and sets on your personal key value database.
1: Yes, for example.
0: And it can't do anything security dangerous outside of that. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I remember saying, because I saw you give a talk about Unison at Erdev a few years back, which is a great conference in Sweden. And you said... Something I want to which relates to this. You said languages have not caught up with the internet age. Which yeah. is a good quote. Related here, and I want you to unpack it.
1: So well, that was, you know, that was a few years ago. But I think what I meant by that was that um languages mostly talk about what one CPU process is doing. So one OS process. Um you know, it might have multiple threads and like doing lots of different things at the same time, but it's mainly there's a single OS thread and it's doing some stuff. And if you want other OS threads or other machines to do stuff, you now need to break out of your programming language. Mm. There there usually aren't any facilities in the languages for talking about what other machines or other uh OS processes are are doing. Mm so you need to you know get out uh, protobufs or uh you know some other non programming
0: language in order to bridge that gap the so there are, i can think of at least one attempt to do that to believe to build a language from the ground up that doesn't believe it's running on one node and that would probably be erlang yeah how is your solution to this problem different?
1: Well, how is it different from erlang so i I don't know enough about Erlang in order to talk about it intelligently, but uh, like I, I, I you know I, I believe that the 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 main difference is that we have this notion of hashing is that we can unambiguously talk about code um like over the network, so I think that you know if you are, you know, sending a message to an to an Erlang location or, or node, like you need to know something about what code it's executing. Uh, like there's there there's going to be some kind of like version version mismatch or there there's some um, impedance mismatch there that. Uh, I believe they probably can't bridge without this kind of unambiguous addressing.
0: Because your system is going to be able to say, if I start this running on one node, it can branch itself out to other nodes because it can deploy itself, right? It can say to another machine, run this. And by the way, if you need it, I can send it to you. Yes. And I can imagine the program just spreading out in its own self-managed rolling upgrade
1: yeah that's right
0: that's pretty cool and uh
1: it's all done you know purely in the in the language so there's an ability called remote Mm. um and it gives you this this ability to you know send a computation you basically have this notion of a an abstract location and there's a function called uh i believe it's called fork at and you know it takes a uh like a lazy computations or like a captured continuation and a location and it'll send the code to that to that location
0: and it's sending the data too right
1: yeah it's sending the whole closure right so so everything that the that the uh computation depends on as well
0: okay so it could it could not only map reduce data over a cluster it could map reduce the map reduce computation as well yeah, I mean it could yeah, I I I'm I have a uh, benevolent an image of a benevolent virus in my head spreading itself across the cluster.
1: The benevolent virus is a good way of describing it. We're calling it just in time uh deployment, but yeah, benevolent virus okay. is a cool way of saying it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Depends on whether we want to sound safe or dramatic, I guess. Right. Yeah.
1: It's a lot like just in time compilation, you know, where um you know, translating the program to machine code to run fast happens sort of just in time. And, you know, in unison, you know, translating to network calls
0: happens just in time. Okay. This must, okay, this raises a couple of things. Let's go for the first one. It must raise the question, are you planning some, like, global unison cluster where I just ship my code to that?
1: Yes. Uh, that's in fact the Unison Computing's flagship product is Unison Cloud, where we basically provide you with a library that you just you know put in your in your code base. And then you know you have an API key. Mm. And when you call this library, you are basically deploying your computation on our managed infrastructure. And you can source as much know computational power as you as you require
0: Ah, that feels like it's bridging the gap or eliminating the gap between something like you can get uh, an ec2 machine on aws or you can get a lambda which is running a single function
1: right it is it is like that but it uh, i think it's for one it's a lot simpler and for another thing it's you're doing it in your language so it's really that you know you de- you write your your code and then hmm. to run the program is to deploy it right it deploys itself on the managed infrastructure you don't have to write you know yaml files or like some kind of configuration you don't have to hire you know armies of devops people people to uh to like manage your clusters and and manage your EC2 instances and stuff like that so you know, the, the Unison cloud is doing all of that for you. And okay. all, all you have to do is just run your program and that deploys it.
0: So I've got I've got a hint of this from a talk I saw you give, but you would um you literally you load your code into like a REPL and run it and it works. And so then you say run it at um Boston Compute dot unison.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. Right so the, there's a local interpreter for the for the remote ability, so you you know you can write your your program you know as a distributed thing you know using mm-hmm. the the remote ability and you can run it locally um, using this sort of local interpreter uh and there are other interpreters where you can like diagram your system so you can like see you know how it's like distributing itself over the network okay. uh, and that's all done locally but then there's the Unison Cloud Interpreter, which goes and actually deploys it on managed infrastructure in the cloud and you know it's live.
0: So how does that deal with, I guess these are related things, but how the other thing you need as well as deploying code for a remote managed service like that, is you need persistence of data and you need migration of data. Yes. How are you dealing with those things?
1: So that's you know that's uh, early days so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, the things that you can do, for instance, is uh, uh, you can talk to S three, for instance, right now. Okay. Um, and Unison, you know, Unison Cloud is, you know, close to like wherever your S three instances might be or your S three uh, objects might be, uh, <clears throat> but we're also developing a uh, managed storage uh, system. So it's it's a, it's a typed storage that's basically just a Unison library. And then you can take any Unison object and you can persist it in, in the cloud. And then, you know, you get basically typed access to it back. Uh, and there are, you know... Often there are problems with these kinds of things where like, oh, I can persist any object and then serialize it back. But um, if you try to do this with, uh, you know, I don't know. I've done this in languages like Java where, you know, you have have like a library that can persist any object to, to disk or to a database. Yeah. Then you run into the issue that as the code evolves, like the data types change, you know, and then you end up with a version mismatch and then like, it's very difficult to get like old versions of stuff like out of storage yeah but unison doesn't have this problem because you can you know the 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 storage knows what type uh, the object is mm-hmm. and so the the hash of the type is available and you can load that type and so you will always have an object of the type that has that hash. And, you know, you can recover the code for that for that type as well.
0: Okay, so even if you update the definition of the type, you can still deserialize the old types because they're kind of stored in Git-ishness. Right. But then, in
1: sort of Merkle tree.
0: Yeah. But then you've got the problem that your new code that you've updated expects the new... Hash of the data type,
1: yeah. But then you'll just get an ordinary type error, and so we, all you have to do is basically convert the the data that you've restored to the new type, and then you can store it again or do whatever. But it's it's all like still very much in your language, and you get the the benefit of like normal things like type errors rather than like a runtime error that says like oh version mismatch. Uh, right.
0: Yeah. So you're you're pushing the kind of data migration problem to compile time. Yes. Basically. That's okay. I like that, because it's gonna that kind of error is gonna come up and you have to deal with it anyway. But so you might as well find out sooner and with better error messages.
1: Right. And And then I mean you can migrate things programmatically. Obviously, you can write a program that says like grab all this stuff and like convert it to the new version and serialize it again. You know, you can do all the sort of normal things that you would otherwise do.
0: You'll end up writing functions which take user.hash1 and return to user.hash2, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And you can do that at compile time, and it will check it for you, and then just, just work. Right. That's an interesting promise for long-running computation. Um, long running services, so I best ask you this question: What state is unison in? Is it alpha beta research production?
1: Uh, I would say sort of late beta stage at this at this point okay uh, so that you know I wouldn't say anyone is using unison for like mission critical stuff in production at this moment and and you probably shouldn't but <laughs> right. uh, you know it's uh it's already a, a pretty capable language and uh, has good library support already. Um, and, you know, constantly new libraries being developed as an active and friendly community. And, um, and, you know, there are all these things that are sort of converging this year, which is, you know, we're, we're getting uh, Unison Cloud is coming out of out of beta it's so it's in sort of a private beta at the moment okay uh so you have to like get on a wait list and stuff but so we're bringing it out of beta this year uh we're we're adding this storage layer and uh unison is also getting native compilation like very soon so you will be able to you know run your code in the cloud very fast Uh, okay
0: what's the current state of it so
1: currently, it is uh, an interpreted language. So it's a bytecode interpreter. Okay. So it sort of compiles to a like a Unison bytecode, and then there is an interpreter written in Haskell that uh, that interprets that that bytecode. And so we have a just in time compiler that's being developed uh, sort of by the community and, and by Unison Computing, and that's all being developed in the open. And
0: so it compiles the Scheme now,
1: and com- Scheme compiles to very fast oh, really? machine
0: code. Right. Yep. um, what's the other language that's Idris? Doesn't that use it, Scheme to compile? I believe yes, I believe so.
1: I believe Idris compiles to chess Scheme.
0: Yeah, I wonder what it is about Scheme that makes it a nice compilation target.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's it's very comprehensible for one thing. It's uh, you know, it, it it's got good performance. I think the compiler uh produces really good machine code, and we found that the uh the code that's generated by the the new just in time compiler is like between four hundred and seven hundred times faster, so that's pretty good
0: that's cool, and that's coming out this year yeah hopefully okay so there are a couple of so we talked about like this git like thing. I could coming back to Git as my reference point for hash it and ship it. Sure. Um, the other thing which you've touched on a bit we should go deeper in is, is abilities. We had uh, Louis Pillfold, the author of Gleam, on a few weeks ago, and he said he really wanted to bring effects, managed effects, to the language, but couldn't find a good way to do it. Have okay. you found a good way to do? it? What are managed effects for the listeners? And have you found a good way to make it usable?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so I don't, I don't know exactly what he means by managed effect, but I imagine that he means that the effects are tracked in the type. Uh, is it a type language?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I think he's perfect. going in the um, Haskell type side effects direction. Okay, plus plus. All right,
1: perfect. But, um, yeah, so, you know, there are a number of different ways that you can do this, like manage effects in the in the type system. And so the way that Haskell has gone is to do this with monads. Mm-hmm. So basically you just have a, a data type that's like parameterized and the data type, you know, represents like what kind of effects you can do. Like for instance, you know, there's an IO, famously, there's an IO data type. Yeah. So instead of just having a, a string, like you, you read a line from the from the console and you don't get a string, you get an i o string yeah. uh, and so you get this data type called i o which has a parameter which is strings, so it's an i o sort of containing a string eventually uh, and you know that's that's uh, a perfectly cromulent way of managing uh effects in the language, but it ha- you know it has certain drawbacks uh for one thing. Monads are, uh, they have a syntactic overhead in the language. So uh, programs that that are pure, you know, that don't use any effects, mm-hmm. they are syntactically different from programs that do use monads. And so you have these sort of two programming modes. That yeah, you're one learning. of the first
0: things you have to learn when you're learning Haskell is how to flip between those two modes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then composing monads is, you know, a sort of an evergreen topic. Yeah. <laughs> so so one of the things that people do is like, you know, monad transformers. So you get a, a you know, you want to compose monads F and G. And so you need a, you know, an F, T monad transformer, which t- is parameterized by another monad G. And that, compi- you know, combines them into this sort of composite monad where you want to do like, oh, say, you know, state and uh, I.O., for instance.
0: Yeah. Uh, And so then you get this, like, state T of I.O. or whatever. Yeah, you can end up with, like, a program that has the side effect of accessing the database and doing logging is different to a program that has a side effect of doing logging and accessing a database. Yeah, that's true. Logically, they should just have those two side effects.
1: Yes. So what we're what we're doing is a little bit different. So we're taking the approach of algebraic effects. So we're calling okay. these abilities, uh, which is a term that we got from uh, a paper called Doobie Doobie Doo, uh, which is which is the best awesome
0: title a paper ever.
1: That's <laughs> about a language called Frank, uh, which is uh, by Connor McBride, I believe.
0: Yeah, They've, I've I've seen Connor yeah. in action. He's a great great thinker. Awesome,
1: yeah, but. Um, yeah so you know we got got these the, these ideas from from there and uh so algebraic effects are a little bit different in that um you you are able to combine effects sort of side by side uh so instead of you know pr- pressing them together using like a transformer you have this just sort of set of abilities on your on your functions so a function will be you know, it, it will require the abilities to do IO and state, for instance. And that's just like basically a, a set um, on the function arrow. And um, uh, so, so combining these things, this is sort of trivial. You, you know, if you invoke an IO thing, that gets added to the set. If you invoke a thing that accesses the database, you get that added to the set.
0: So when you're looking at the type signature, you see the sum total of all the effects that particular function has demanded in order to run. That's right. Yeah, And then presumably you write some code that dispatches each of those effects. So you see in your set, it says, I need logging. So you wrap that function call in with standard out logging.
1: Right, exactly. And that
0: takes logging out of the set, and eventually you get down to just a computation.
1: Yeah that's exactly how it works right and you can write you know custom handlers for these things uh unison has a keyword called handle where you can supply a handler for any any effect and you basically just pattern match on the constructors of the data type that represents the ability um and also importantly i think it doesn't have any syntactic overhead or it has very minimal syntactic overhead so a a program that uses abilities looks a lot like an imperative program that doesn't use abilities. So it's there's no sort of monadic um, syntax
0: involved. We're not switching between do and bind syntax and regular pure function syntax,
1: right? So um, you're always just writing sort of like a block, um, and so you know you can just like write basically like a let block, and you can do effects there, and the whole block will take on the type of having or requiring those abilities.
0: That sounds a lot like the upside of Haskell, you know, tracked effects tracked in the type system, I think is a really good idea, Mm
1: -hmm. but it's
0: hard to teach. And it's a bit of a learning curve. And it sounds like you may have solved that second problem. If you're to be believed.
1: I don't know if we've solved it, but I think it makes it a little bit easier to, to think about at least for for people who are, you know, not, uh, you know, versed in monads, uh, you can still have monads in Unison, and you can have monad transformers and all that stuff. Like that's perfectly possible. Uh, but but as you know, it's not directly encouraged by like the standard library and things like that. Uh, another thing is that there are, of course, downsides to this. So okay. one of the downsides is that. Uh, Algebraic effects, at least in the form that they exist in in Unison currently, are not as expressive as monads and monad transformers, and so you can't uh, necessarily combine things in ways that you would otherwise do in uh, in Haskell. Can you give me an example? Can I give you an example? <laughs> like, f- so for example, in in uh, in Haskell. You might be able to do sort of like a higher-order effect where you, you know, you you might abstract over monads that have a particular capability. Um, So you you know, what's an example of this? Like, uh, there's something like Monad State, for instance. So that's like. A class that represents all the monads that could possibly be interpreted to, you know, to track some state. Yeah. And and th- so that's very expressive to be able to like abstract over all effect types that track state. But uh the Unison's type system, Unison's ability system, doesn't allow you to talk about, you know, effects that like abstract over the capabilities of other effects at this okay. moment. But they At may come, come later.
0: Okay. I think that's probably, uh, for the majority of programmers, this is already um, astronauty enough for that to be okay.
1: Yeah, I and mean, it's a trade-off, you know. for For a lot of programmers, you know, seeing a library that is very abstract, you know, while using it might be pretty straightforward, like once you get into it, you know, like the the compiler will take care of like mapping your concrete data types to their abstract types. Mm. But seeing a library that is very abstract, you may struggle to understand like how you're supposed to actually use it.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, that all depends on like compiler support. Like um there are functions in Haskell that are terribly useful, but like have so many type variables I can't keep track. Right And the more type variables you have, the worse the error messages get.
1: That is also true.
0: Have you done anything to solve that problem?
1: <laughs> well, you know one of the ways we solve that problem is is the you know you're encouraged to write things in a very direct style, and so you know you don't end up necessarily with these sort of type astronauty uh things you know i I can think of. You know, a couple of libraries for Haskell, for instance, where people really struggle with error messages. And one of them is like Lens, Mm. where, you know, it's super useful. I love the Lens library and um, I use it all the time. But often error messages are really abstract and you have to be sort of well-versed in how to use Lens in order to understand it. Yeah. And another one is Servant, which allows you to, you know, basically describe uh, an HTTP server as a type. And mm. so you get this sort of like typed communication over HTTP, which is super awesome, and it basically just like generates all of the boilerplate for you. Uh, but the error messages it gives you are just like, you know, they might be twenty pages long or something if you you know get you know like one type variable wrong, <laughs> and it can yeah. be really difficult to to decipher a type that a type that describes an entire HTTP server. Yeah. Um. And so we're taking a lot of sort of um, we're taking a lot of cues from languages like Python for instance like the the culture in in Python in the Python community generally is that you know you write libraries that work in the obvious way and people you know you sit down with a Python library and you can sort of generally uh you can kind of uh, assume that it's going to be written in a kind of obvious way, that that how you're supposed to use this library is going to be straightforward, and it's yeah. going to write it in a very direct
0: style. That's easier said than done, though. I mean, you've got yeah, to kind it of takes agree some on what design. counts as obvious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So perhaps you should say, who the who's your target audience for Unison? are you expecting Haskell programmers to switch to it eventually, or is it Python programmers? Who's going to be adopting Unison if you get your dream world?
1: Well, in the dream world, it's basically everyone who wants to develop distributed systems, which is right. really everybody, because there aren't very many systems these days that aren't distributed. Mm. You know, even things like, um you know, systems that have a front end and a back end, you know, the, the communication between the browser and and your your backend if you're writing like a like a web application that's yeah. a distributed system and uh one of the things that we hope to develop in the future is um you know a, a javascript compiler for for unison oh, so we, yeah. you should be able to write a distributed system that runs in your browser and deploys itself to the cloud
0: Will we be getting a future in which the browser like checks out the hashes of the functions that have changed since the last time you checked the website? Yeah, that'd be that would be amazing. Oh. oh, that that reminds me of something. I I also remember you saying in your talk way back when, which um, I'll let you explain it. Perfect compilation, perfect incremental compilation. Oh yes, that's a big one.
1: Yeah, so perfect incremental compilation. So in Unison, your your code base is sort of always live, so you it it lives in a database and it's always compiled. So let me contrast that with so let's do the genesis differentia thing. Okay. So contrasting that with the the way things work in most programming languages, like let's take Haskell for instance. Okay. So in Haskell, you you write a bunch of text files. You know, you proceed to mutate those text files. Uh, and then you run the compiler. And the compiler generates the code. Uh, and then if you've done something wrong, you get you know, a long list of error messages. And you've got to go mutate the text file some more, and then run the compiler. And then whenever you change something, you've got to like run the compiler and like, build everything. Yeah. Okay? So the way that Unison works is that, that whenever you write like a definition or a type or something, it gets compiled basically immediately. Uh, You know, you submit it to the Unison codebase manager and you can add it to your codebase right there and then. And it lives there in a compiled state. And then when you write some more code, it, you know, compiles that code uh, and then you can add that to your codebase. And so it's very sort of incremental. And your codebase is never in a state where it's like broken. Like you can never, you know, mutate your your code base in such a way that it is uh that it doesn't compile.
0: All right. Right. Okay. And you've also got like your you've got if you've got like a large old code base where the majority of code there you don't actually touch. Yeah. That never needs recompiling. That's right. Yeah. What if you get a new employee come along? And they let's exaggerate and say we've got like Google or Facebook size monorepo, repo, mm-hmm. and they want to check that out and start working. Do they get everyone else's precompiled shared code base for free? Yes, they do.
1: Yep. So the way that the Unison code base manager works is that um, so everything is stored in its sort of compiled state, and then you uh, you can push that to you know other locations, and and the the uh, the one that we provide is called the Unison Share. So mm. it's sort of like our version of GitHub in a, in a sense. And yeah. so you you push your your code to to share, mm. and then your the other developers that you're working with will pull that. And what they're pulling isn't the the text of the program; they're pulling the compiled version down, and then they can use the code base manager to view the source code or edit the source code.
0: Mm. Uh, but the source code is not stored anywhere. Okay, so how does that work for, like, if you and I have two functionally identical functions, but I've put comments in mine? Do
1: you... Okay, so What's that coming... really depends on how you've added comments in it. So so there's one kind of comment that's completely ignored. Uh, so then it just gets thrown away when you, like, compile your your function and and if you delete the source code it's gone the comment is gone it'll it'll never come back it's sort of like a note to self Uh, another way you can write comments is to you basically just put strings in line in the program you know and you can you know there's a little function called ignore which will allow you know just tells the program to ignore this and um that will change the hash of the program and so you know if you if you have identical functions that have like different comments they, they do get treated as as different different functions so we, we've toyed with the idea of adding a, a third kind of comment which is sort of like a comment that lives in the compiled form but doesn't contribute to the hash uh, but that has a mm-hmm. downside that if you ever want to change the comment you would have to like basically delete that hash from your code base and add it back with the with the updated comment
0: that's nasty yeah um yeah, uh hash the metadata separately
1: yeah that's that's another thing you know we could do is to basically put uh and, and unison, unison the code base format has this facility for metadata now we we include things like who wrote this and what's the license um okay. And stuff like that so every definition has you know some metadata hanging on it like author and license and maybe uh whether or not it's a test um where's I'm the so, documentation things like that
0: could you theoretically then say i want to make sure that in production i'm not running any proprietary code
1: yes you can and you can computationally do that you can ask you can basically write a program that takes a unison expression and, you know, at Take least the theoretically you could Walks check the, the license, yeah. walk the tree, and ask it, does or this make use sure... any
0: GPL? Yeah, or can I make sure that none of my test code makes it into production? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, one more thing on on that then. So you're saying I write a function... It gets hashed and the compiled version gets shipped over to the central repository. Mm-hmm. Someone else checks it out. They can't get my syntactic sugar. So there must be some official code formatting for Unison. Yeah.
1: So uh, Unison will format the source code. So, you know, there's a, it currently has one surface syntax, but theoretically there could be many. Uh, we've toyed with the idea of having like a Lisp syntax for, for Unison. <laughs> oh, uh,
0: I could write mine in Lisp and my colleagues would never know. Your colleagues
1: would just see, they might see like the Haskell like syntax that it currently yeah. has. But yeah, uh, the, the source code is is thrown away. So you're never sort of like faffing about with formatting or whatever. You just like write your code, submit it, and you can just trust that it'll look nice when it gets uh, rendered. Or, you know, if it doesn't look nice, at least it will look the way that Unison code is supposed to look.
0: Right, yeah. You have to agree with the one true way of formatting code, but I'm, I'm kind of proud yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I like that too. I don't, I don't like to have to think about, you know, formatting my, my code. That's just like not part of the job.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'd rather the entire team agreed on one code formatting and we all got it for free. Right, yeah, rather than debating and hand crafting to fit to match the blessed guide, right, yeah.
1: I mean we have you know unison is mostly written in Haskell, and so we have in our Haskell code base you know there's there's this sort of uh, blessed uh format which is which is uh generated by Ormolu. and and so you know we have all well, have these like commit triggers and whatever so that whenever you submit new Haskell code, it all gets formatted in the approved way and and whatever. Yeah. But even that can be contentious. Like, oh, maybe you have different versions of the formatter. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, maybe you don't like the way this is and so you kind of want to tweak it. And so you may have to like form a committee about like, oh, do we want to tweak this <laughs> parameter here? So so even that like leads to bike shedding. But in unison, that is just like completely out the window. There's no tweaking the formatting at all you just you get what the uh what the code base manager you know prints out and that's it
0: but in theory you could have like you could have your preferred formatting that no one ever needed to worry about
1: that's true and yeah. in theory you could do that
0: because i've worked on teams where every single person just wanted the unified formatting except one guy who would absolutely oh, yeah. use
1: that's actually that's, that's actually a good point. You know, you could we could introduce facilities so that you could tweak the formatting for for like just your instance of, of the code base manager. So locally you're developing in, you know, beautiful unison code that is exactly the way you want it, but then once you submit it to the, the code base, everybody else sees it the way they want it, but then you see their code the way you want it as well.
0: Yeah philosophically this is very it seems simple but very different that we're we're still dealing with text files but we're not really text files are just a projection of what we're really dealing with
1: yeah yeah that's right i think that code as text is is really just a user interface onto like what you're actually doing it's a really good user interface like it's very expressive highly flexible you know we've toyed with things like structured editors and so where you're like directly editing the tree and like you can't get compile errors and stuff like that and i think that ideally that would be awesome like
0: mm. but the
1: the user experience of it i've never found it to be as good as just writing text
0: yeah yeah i tend to agree so i mean that sounds like something maybe for the next version or a few versions down the line
1: yeah, a few versions down the line, maybe we'll have a structured editor. Yeah. And custom formatters.
0: Yeah, I can believe. But where are we today? If I go and if I go and check out Unison, what kind of experience can I expect to have? What kind of libraries am I gonna wish were there but aren't? Oh, well, that's, that.
1: that's a good question. <clears throat> what kind of libraries would you wish there were but aren't? Uh well so when you when you uh install unison you know if you're if you have like brew you just say like brew install unison lang um or Unison language and you know you can go to the to the website and like download the binary if you're on like linux or whatever Mm. and it's really straightforward setup there's one executable uh you run the executable you know it's called ucm you just run the executable and it's listening to uh, changes to dot u files in the current directory so then you open your text your favorite text editor you open uh, a buffer named dot u like something u and you just edit you know you can write unison code directly in there and whenever you save it ucm will pick that up and you know ch- type check it and, and give you some feedback about it hmm. and then you can interact with the ucm to uh like add it to your code base or, or you know, ship it to Unison Share or stuff like that, or run it. Uh, so yeah, it's it, it's a it's a very minimal setup. Like there's not a lot of like uh, uh, configuration or you know installation that needs to happen in order to get get going, and uh, and you can really just like start writing code right away. There's not nothing nothing to like set up.
0: I'll tell you a way that this would instantly interest me, right? So I've got, I can imagine going to a hackathon with Unison. I run this Unison code manager. What I'd like to do quickly and easily is connect it to my teammates' laptops in, in such that if I write a new function, they can instantly pull it in. Is that something yeah. I will need Unison Share for or can we just do like a local GitHub?
1: <laughs> you can. You can use Git uh, in order to like push code around. It does okay. support that. But um, it supports it as binary files. So you push basically you push your code base as a binary file to, you know, like a shared Git repository and they can pull it from there. Yeah. Um, but the 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 nice way of doing things is just to use Unison Share, because um, you don't you're not pushing these binary blobs around really.
0: Okay, I saw. So another thing we had recently on the podcast was we were talking about Advent of Code, as mm-hmm. um, like a coding competition um, for different programming puzzles that goes on once a year. I saw you had a Unison challenge around Advent of Code. Yeah, we like did. participate. That must have turned up a few like holes in the standard library, that kind of thing. Did it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was fantastic. There's seen people, you know, solving these sort of simple programming puzzles. It turned up a lot of useful functions that weren't in the standard library. Uh, maybe whole libraries that didn't exist mm. but should have. Um, but you know, I actually would love to know the answer to this question. Like when somebody sits down. You know with unison and like wants to to get started like what libraries are they finding aren't there because you know i i don't know the answer to that and i i would love to know because you know i i want to write those libraries that people want i uh, am yeah. um, and like um, farm them out to the community like you know the community is hungry to to write useful
0: libraries cool um I'll give you I'll give you three off the top of my head because these are the first three I always look for in any language. Can I do a web server, a web socket and connect to let's say postgres?
1: You can. Uh so the first one, yes. So there's a there's a web server uh library. Um uh, there's a, also another library that I'm currently working on that creates a a sort of very ergonomic uh API on top of that that Low-level web server. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, there's not currently a WebSockets library. Okay, but that's that's a good one. We could definitely do that. And uh, you can connect to Postgres. There is a little library that allows you to connect to the simple Postgres protocol. Um, but currently underway is development of a library that allows you to, you know, do connect to to use the more advanced. Postgres protocol do things like prepared statements and things like that.
0: And is there like um, an interop? Have you got any way of like um, creating a new library quickly by reusing a Java C library, something like that?
1: No, there isn't anything like that. Uh, It's currently written in pure. Yeah, it's got to be written in pure Unison or Hmm. it has to be added to the Unison runtime like through Haskell. That's okay. currently the way things are, but uh, that you know it won't be that way forever. I, I envision a future where you'll be able to make calls into uh, foreign functions, you know, using the scheme interface.
0: Yeah, and speaking of the future, perhaps to end on, do you think you've got the big idea you seem to have here? I mean, you've got a few big ideas for mainstream programming. But the big one is this idea of hashing code and and storing sharing hash code. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that will start to percolate into other languages? And is that something you're trying to do?
1: Yeah, I I think so. I think we're kind of already seeing that a little bit uh, in 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 various places. You know, I mean, there's there's things like Nix, for instance. Uh, that you know is very much. This idea that you know everything is hashed, but it, the granularity is different. Obviously, um, there is. Uh, I saw some some work underway last year with Haskell, where you know they can do like term equivalence up to to hash. Um, so you know you can so basically inside the compiler you can decide whether two things are the same, um, like based on the hash. But that's you know, not yet like communicating between machines or, or anything like that. But, hmm. but yeah, I, I, see, I see this idea of of hashing come up uh, like all over the place, and like even like languages that are based on like I don't know blockchain or whatever. I mean, the basic idea is that you have some like eternal address oh, for yeah. an object, and then you can like always refer to that. You know, that address on the on the blockchain or whatever. Uh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're encoding code on a hash and like you send money to a hash which turns out to be an executable contract, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there are like distributed hash tables. Um like uh what's it called? HSF FS? I, I forget what it's called. <laughs> but it you know, there's a you know, there's a a number of implementations of like distributed hash tables where you can like Store data like in the ether, basically by by hash.
0: This big content-addressable storage super network, right? Yeah. Oh. So, so what what we're saying is this idea is already percolating into the world, and a great place to discover it would be Unison.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's sort of an idea whose time has come, and uh, you know it, it has a lot of benefits I again mean, it comes with a lot of uh, implications that changes the way things are done you know like things like builds and like dependency management and internode communication yeah. like basically everything changes when you when you start to refer to things by you know by a deterministic name rather than some invented name
0: yeah yeah, and some invented and commonly reused name. We like function name tends to apply to all the versions of that function we've ever written, right?
1: Yeah. And you know, you'll have a, a data type called list in a standard library or whatever. And like, well, do you mean list version one? Do you mean list version two? Like, who knows? Yeah. And like you will have different dependencies that might make different assumptions about what a particular name refers to. And if they don't agree, then you'll get like a you know, in the best case, you will get uh, dependency conflict at compile time or at build time. In the worst case, you'll get a runtime error. And yeah. so we, we avoid that.
0: All based on this problem we know exists, but we kind of hand wave over because we've never had a good way of solving it.
1: Right, I think so. Yeah.
0: You might be a good way of getting uh, to the next level of programming. I certainly hope so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to encourage people to just, like, Come to, you know, Unison Slack. Uh come to the to the Unison website, download Unison, install it, play with it, and let us know like what's missing, what could what could be better. Uh or you know, let us know what's what's great and what's cool. Like I really, <laughs> That'd be really nice want to
0: on the internet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So unison langorg dot org, is it? Yes, that's right. We'll link to it in the show notes, but uh yeah. For now, I think we should leave people to go and check it out. But for now, Runa, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Chris.
0: Cheers. Thank you, Runa. You know, it's my ambition for this podcast that we'll be always looking to where we hope our industry will be in five or ten years. And if we just manage to get one or two of Unison's ideas into the mainstream, I think we'd be in such a better place. I hope Unison does it. I hope someone does it. You know, even the approach to incremental compilation would change our working lives, change the speed at which we build and deploy. I worked at a place once where their CI server was so log jammed that you would wait overnight to see if a branch would build. I don't think that's so uncommon. Incremental compilation would have made that as simple as compiling a few functions. I really hope it goes mainstream. I look to the future as ever with optimism. But that's all for now until we reach the glorious future of next week's episode. Take a look in the show notes for links to Unison and how to get started. I'll put in a link to that wonderfully titled research paper, Doobie Doobie Doo. Check out the like and subscribe and share buttons if you'd like to show your appreciation. And I think that's all. Until next time, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Runar Bjarnson. Thanks for listening.